What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Kalisa Ray, author of the debut poetry collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. Kalisa Ray is a multi-genre literary artist, an essayist, journalist, poet, and budding novelist. She is based in Durham, North Carolina, and speaks with fierce rebellion. Kalisa says being a writer in the South and the only Black woman in many spaces, she has learned many lessons in her publishing journey through trial and error. Kalisa is the author of The Real Girls Have Real Problems chapbook. Her poetry can also be seen in Frontier, Rust and Moth, Damaged Goods, Terse, Sundog Lit, Oculum, and The Obsidian, among others. She is the winner of the Bright Wings Poetry Contest, the Furious Flower Gwendolyn Brooks Poetry Prize, and the White Stack Publishing Contest, among others. Currently, she serves as the founder of Think and Inc. and the Women Speak Reading Series and Writing Center Director at Shaw University. Her debut poetry collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat, is out now, right now, from Red Hen Press and will be coming out from White Stag Publishing in the winter of 2022. So in this conversation, Kalisa and I talk about trauma as it relates to sexual desire and relationships, how learning her body helped her finalize her poetry collection, what it means to actively take control of our joy by letting toxicity go, and refilling your creative cup even when it's not for coin. Black and published family, let's welcome Kalisa Ray to the show. Okay, so Kalisa, thank you for joining me today on Black and Published. Uh, congratulations on your new debut poetry collection, uh, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat. Very provocative title. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. So I always like to start the podcast by asking, when did you know that you were a writer? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I've always been. Um, I always tell people that I have still the Tupperware containers that uh, are filled with my old fiction stories that I used to write when I was seven. My mom still has them back in Gary, Indiana, and she's shipping them to me, actually, um, because I've always written. That's what I've always wanted to do was to tell stories, whether that was through making up skits and monologues and acting. Um, my parents put me in like performing arts classes in school very early. So I always was creating story, uh, developing some type of story or like creating another world. Um, so, yeah, I would say I was like born telling stories and being a writer. But um, I would say as an adult, probably when I hit college was when like I started calling myself a writer. Um, but even when I was six or seven, I would be like, mom, I'm going to be, you know, a famous actress and an author because I'm a writer and I tell stories. Um, but I think I took myself seriously in college. Yeah. So I'm going to get there to the college story, but are you from Gary? I am from Gary, Indiana, and then moved to Maryville. And then in college, I spent most of my time in Chicago, but like my immediate family still lives in Maryville, Indiana. But I was in Gary and, and born and raised there until my first year of high school. High school spent that in Maryville. And then in college, would just like fly into Chicago and spend most of my time there. So, yeah. Okay. Just Why, what's I'm, up? Because I'm from Chicago, so I had to know. Why? <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah, I'm from That's Chicago. Dope. And then my godmother lived in Gary. She just moved to Atlanta, but she lived in Gary. So I was like, oh, snap, fellow Midwesterner. No, I swear to you that my mom or probably my one of my parents or my cousins knows your family because they know everybody. They know everybody. <laughs> we'll talk. 
so let's 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 get back to the writing after this sure this little detour catching up with cuz yeah <laughs> what was the moment when you were in college that made you take yourself seriously as a writer um so you know well it's funny we talk about family and where we're from because that connects so i think my sister was uh, a filmmaker and a film writer. And I, you know how your big sister, you want to follow in their footsteps. I always was looking for the thing that like grounded me and made it like official that I like did something because as a, as a young person looking at, you know, my role model, my sister, I always kind of felt like, you know, no one took me seriously as the baby of the family. I kind of was like, well, you know, everybody laughs at me and says, ha ha ha, she's going to be, she thinks she's going to be a famous writer and actress. And it wasn't until college, I always say you need somebody to give you validation when you're an artist, like somebody along the way has to like tell you, no, you can do this. And I had this pivotal moment where I actually started out and that's kind of what the book is about. I started out at a PWI. And I didn't receive the validation there in Wilmington because it has such a deep rooted history of racism and oppression. It wasn't ironically until I transferred to NCNT, which we know is a famous um, black, historically black college, did my first semester. The director of the English department looked at me, called me up and she's, she's a blind, like renowned poet. And she was like, just hearing your voice and hearing you speak and how powerful you are, you're going to do this for the rest of your life. And literally that was the moment that I was like, so first of all, how, you know, cause you can't see me. <laughs> You've never met me. Like you don't know <laughs> anything about me. I'm just a new student. Instantly. That's what she said. And that was the moment that I was like, if this woman who's like directs the entire department has all these accolades, like never met before, can't see me, but said like, just off the power of listening to my words, she knows that this is going to be my lifelong career. Then like, there we go. That's, that's it. So yeah. Yeah. You, you never put a question mark where them old black aunties put a period. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So then how did that transfer into you? Because being validated so young is one thing, but then like making a living and making this artist life mm -hmm. work is another. So what mm -hmm. is that story? So, right. I mean, it, it happened immediately. So when she told me that, I'm not kidding, like literally that little fire for career driven mindset. Like as soon as she said that, I was like, okay, then we get into work. So do you know, literally the day, days leading up to me graduating from um, North Carolina Anti-University, I got a group of women identified poets, Black poets together in our class because this class was the poetry class that she ran. So I got a bunch of dope poets together. And we decided to start a business while we were still in our final weeks before we graduated. And we were like, you know what? And at the time, of course, like we thought it was just going to be a group. We didn't know it was going to become a business. We started it. We did the business plan. We put everything together. We named it Poet She. We uh, were like, you know what? This could be like a nonprofit. And we got all of our advisors together that were like, and we put it to them and was like, what do you think of this? They were like, that's like ingenious. We don't know of any all black women x uh poetry or literary arts organization in this area y'all are doing something that's revolutionary so we put that together and then literally like weeks after we graduated we hit the pavement and and i was like i was serious the other um members of the group still were kind of like working other jobs but i was like i'm gonna quit my job and my 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 husband at the time my my boyfriend then uh, that I actually met at poetry group uh he was like, okay, are you sure? Like, are you crazy? And I was like, yes, I'm quitting my full-time job and I'm making this it. Like this group is it. So we put in our articles of incorporation. We became a nonprofit. I hustled and was teaching at every single school in the Guilford County area. Um, like in, in elementary, middle and high school, I was a hustler um, and was going as a teaching artist to every single school I could get my hands on. And I was making up quite a bit of money um, being a hustler and booking us gigs. I would book us speaking engagements. Like I was our manager. I was our executive director. Like I was everything. <laughs> um, but see how powerful somebody telling you that you could do something is like, that's all she had to tell me. And then I instantly was like, this could be a business. And I hit the ground running. Um, and we didn't, I mean, we only lasted like three years because we needed so much funding to keep that sustainable. Um, and we couldn't get the funding. And then the, and some of us moved, like we had members that moved to New York and I moved, um, here to Durham. And so we kind of like broke apart, but yeah, I made it like 
a serious career very instantly and knew that I wanted to like do this. And I knew I wanted to publish from like the moment she spoke those words into existence. So, yeah. And so what you're like 19, 20, 21 doing all this stuff. So I was a non-traditional student. No, no. Um, so I actually, women, Wilmington's racism and oppression put such a like dent and stain on me um, that I took time off school. I fall into a really hard depression. I flunked out of my classes. And so I took time off school and I was like, oh, I'm gonna be an actress. And my parents were like, no, nah, you got to figure it out. Um, <laughs> so they, when they told me they were cutting me off, unless I went back to college, I packed up my bags and moved to Greensboro. Um, but I was 22 when I got back in school and um, finished up my last year of college. So like I was in my mid twenties. And by the time we started this, I was like 23, 24. Um, so yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't a kid anymore. I was like, yo, I need to figure this <laughs> this out. I got bills. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the job that you quit to do poetry full time? Oh my goodness. So I quit my job at the O'Henry Hotel working for a five diamond hotel, making, you know, lucrative amounts of money, uh, straight out of college. And yeah, and it's funny because I never will forget like watching this like very white establishment have like all of the workers be black. Mm -hmm. And it hit me one day. I was like, I have to get out of here. Like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> like, this is not like, that's what I ran from. I ran from a situation where I was like the token black girl being oppressed. I'm not going to go back to doing that just to make a coin. Like I can make a coin publishing and doing what I want to do. Um, and you did. So, yeah. And I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after Poet She kind of disbanded, mm -hmm. what did you do next? So we, my journey with Wilmington has been very interesting. That's why I like this book is so pivotal because it really sparked um, the whole like story and impetus of this book. But I tried so long to like stay away from there and somehow it just kept pulling me back in. So like I said, I met my boyfriend at the time, husband now in poetry uh, group at NCNT. And when we got together and we got serious and Poet She disbanded, I started working for as a as a teacher and for various nonprofits in Greensboro. Ironically, him and I both lost um, our jobs at the same time. So his job lost funding and laid everybody off. Like he's a computer programmer and a poet, but his computer programming job laid everybody off just like out of nowhere. And this is like his first big job out of college. And he was like, what? Like I have, I have like bills and rent to pay. Um, and my, my funding at the nonprofit that I was working for lost funding literally at the same time. And so he was like, um, babe, I put my resume in and guess where I got a job. And I was like, do not say, <laughs> do not say that you found your dream job in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was like, uh, yeah, found my dream job in Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> So we ended up moving back to Wilmington. I don't know what, like why God felt like I had so much more work to do there. My journey with Wilmington wasn't over. So I moved back to Wilmington and I just used the same skills that I had in Greensboro. So I started working for the school system in Wilmington and then jumped right in, back into like activism nonprofits, working for the YW, working for the school system. Um, cause I really wanted to stay connected to this idea that like words and poetry and writing has the power for social change. So all the jobs that I had before I kind of like started moving towards full-time authorship, all the jobs were still connected to that. So like I was a teaching artist again in the school system, working with students on like how to use their voice for change. Then I was um, working for the YWCA as a community arts director, a community outreach director. And so that like, I tried to pull in as much arts as possible there for social change um, and empowering women. Started working for the Glow Girls Academy, started doing the same. We created a curriculum where it was all about like using your words to empower girls. Um, and then like, you know, me and my husband again looked at each other and was like, what are we, like, why are we back here? Like, why have we been here for so long? What are we doing? We had to reassess. Um, and our final move, which is here to Durham, North Carolina, that's where I was like, yeah, I think I want to start like the plan toward the five-year plan to moving towards 
like full-time authorship. Cause I, I just, every time I refuse that I'm unhappy, like working for other people makes me very depressed. Um, so that was kind of like our journey, like back to Wilmington and then deciding that we needed to leave Wilmington just cause every time we go back, it's like, this place is racist as hell. <laughs> like we got to get out of here. Um, and I'm not living in my purpose. I'm not living in my purpose and I'm, I'm miserable. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Were you still writing during that time that you were miserable? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, so while, because my, my husband, um, and I have always been like a part of, uh, the poetry slam world. That's like the piece that I kind of, um, haven't mentioned yet. So when we met, we decided to make a pact that like, we would always stay true to the fact that we're writers, but we're performers at heart. So we started when we met in 2009, we started becoming members of different like national touring poetry slam teams. And so he was a part of the Bull City Slam team. I was a part of the Winston-Salem team. We moved back and forth to Wilmington again, and we just stayed true to that. So we would um, go to every national competition. We would write poems to enter into the Women of the World competition, the individual uh, individual uh, world competition. We would go to Southern Pride Poetry Slam every year. Um, and he would compete in that. I would compete in that. Eventually, I decided that like slamming really wasn't for me. After a couple of years, he stayed with it. Um, so we would still perform at our local poetry slams in Wilmington and in Greensboro. Um, I started my own little like collective of poets in Wilmington because that's just like how I am. So like we would always, you know, do gigs, you know, book speaking engagements, book poetry slams you know, poem engagements, um, to, to spit our poems and read at different functions. And so we were, we constantly kept the pen moving. Um, like that was great to just have a partner to be like, you know, your, your homie to like create with. Um, so yeah, I constantly kept the pen moving. I would always stay busy. Um, like always doing something that related back to poetry. Um, even with me working other jobs, like that was always the goal. The goal was just like, when am I going to find something that pays me enough to stop doing the full-time job that I have, you know? And the full-time job was in the nonprofit work and the teaching. Yeah. 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 I did that. Well, so yes. And right before we left, I had a, um, a student actually from UNCW approached me two years before we left that was like, yo, would you be willing? And she didn't know that I was thinking about, you know, like transitioning on, but she was like, would you be willing to start this all women identified um, poetry and literary arts nonprofit and like feminist bookstore with me? And I was like, uh, yeah. So I actually, before I left, two years before I left, I started Athenian Press um, which was a great idea in theory. Um, but I started with someone who still was grappling with their, their white privilege. And that was a really bad idea. I'll just say that. Like, it wasn't smart to start it with somebody who wanted to be kind of like the white savior. Um, but yeah, so like that was my attempt to see myself doing it full time. Like I saw the, the little, like, peak of light because we did start something pretty powerful. Like there had never been an all women identified literary arts organization with a book. We, we bought a brick and mortar. <laughs> like we raised $40,000. We bought a brick and mortar. We opened a bookstore, a coffee shop, a resource center. And we were doing programs for two and a half years. Um, right before me and my husband were like, and we out. Um, but like, yeah, we started that and it was amazing. And again, couldn't sustain it. Um, one, because me and my husband decided to get married, but two, there wasn't enough funding. There just like, wasn't enough at the time with us being so green. Um, we couldn't find the funding that we needed to keep it, to keep it going. And it was such a like revolutionary idea in Wilmington at the time. Um, they're still going, like she decided to revamp it, um, and keep it going. But yeah, that was my peek into the light of like, I could actually do this full time and like have people pay me, um, not just for my writing, but to teach other people how to write and like be empowered as well. So, yeah. I'm kind of like in awe of like all the things that have happened over this journey so far, and we still haven't <laughs> gotten to the book. Um, <laughs> but you said, so if that was the peak to the fact that you could do this mm -hmm. uh, full time, you also mm -hmm. mentioned you had a five-year plan. Yeah. What were the steps in that five-year plan and how did you execute them? And what has been the culmination of that? 
So the steps really um, were taken from like just a lot of like business. So I took business class. I decided when she approached me, even before she approached me, I was in business class. I was in nonprofit management certificate class. Like I wasn't playing. I want, I knew that I wanted to do that full time. And so like they help you create kind of like a five-year plan when you take these classes for like nonprofit management and like business. And so coupled with the, you know, the resources and the tools that I gained there, Plus, like you said, the like aunties that I had listened to that were like, child, you never leave the full time coins for a temporary coin unless the temporary hustle starts making more than the full time. And so that was like the structure and the framework for the five year plan that I built. Uh, built. I was listening to those those wise sage words. And so I was like, OK, so what do I need to do? How many speaking gigs how many books or poems do I need to publish? How many stories do I need to write? Because I was a journalist too. Like I was grinding on top of uh, Athenian. I was writing stories for the local newspaper. And so I was like, okay, so how many stories would it take? How many would I have to, would I have to publish to make up for, you know, the full-time salary that I was making at this nonprofit? Um, and so I really built it backwards. And I said like, what do I want to make at the end? how many books, poems, stories, and how can I leverage all of my resources? Um, I even, so what I did was I put, this is crazy, but I went on Craigslist and I just like put a call out for people that knew how to like brand and create like somebody's brand as like artist or an author. And I was like, look, seeking people that know how to create a brand and build a full-time author, like artist life. And do you know, I found some like really dope people. And so they were like, yo, we're going to help you put this five-year plan together. We're going to help you create this brand for yourself. Like you can do this. We believe in you. And so like, I, that's what we did. We said, what is your goal? Like money making, like, what is the number? And then they were like, okay, so like how many gigs or things could you do throughout the day? And how many resources and tools, like, do you already possess that you could leverage to make money? Is it workshops? Is it speaking? Is it classes? What is it? And I just bought, I just like built it from there. And really I put it in phases. So I was like, phase one is me getting out of here. So like, I have to leave here because I can't, what I know is I can't do this full time if I'm like constantly anxious and depressed and unhappy because of oppression here. Like, because your pen, your creativity gets stifled, right? Um, you can't move the pen sharp if like, you're always thinking about like, white folks acting a fool. Um, so that was phase one. <laughs> phase two was definitely thinking about what is a job that I could get that would free me up to create half of the day and like be making something that will sustain me and pay bills the other half of the day. This, that's why I ended up back in academia. Cause in Wilmington, I was teaching on and off at the college. And so like moving here to Durham was a part of like phase two, which was like, okay, so working for the college, working for the university is still in the writing field, but it'll free me up to do that. Um, and then I just like build more phases and I said, okay, so like, do I want, what does that look like? Phase three, does that mean like still staying connected to academia? It ended up that it didn't. Right. So, um, that's just like, it's academia so much that like you will learn quickly that trying to like be a full-time author and work in academia is a lot. Um, so yeah, so phase three was like being true to the amount of hours it takes to commit to full-time like authorship and saying like, nah, that looks like me doing things that like bring me more joy, mm. things that are like quicker and easier throughout the day. Um, and then like, I'm still building four and five, you know, like those are still things that are like morphing and changing because of some recent decisions that I've made, um, to transition like out of my full-time position now. So that's kind of how I built it. Just like really thinking about, um, what would give me the, the mental and the literal space and time to create and leverage all of the, the skills that I know I have that could make money. So, yeah. So I have to ask, what was the number? I mean, I'm, I'm in all your business. I, I want to know. I have to ask, what's the number? <laughs> I can't give you that. But what I will say is working for, I will give you a ballpark. So like working for the nonprofits that I was working for, you know, like I was averaging in Wilmington, like 40K, right? 
in my salary and like moving to Durham, that's gone up because of the economy and it's a different place and it's bigger, all those things. But so at the time I was making like 40 K, you know, as a like late 20 something. And I was like, okay, y'all tell me how, what does that translate to every two weeks? And so I looked at that and I was like, you know what? That's actually not that much money. Like I could just publish some stories real quick. I could do three workshop, three poetry workshops, three stories and a, a speaking engagement and spit at a, at a slam or something and get, you know, that a couple thousand every two weeks. So that's kind of like, that's how I looked at it just to give you like a general ballpark. <laughs> okay. So you say the last couple phases are still in progress because yeah. now, you, now you're working at Shaw University. Where did your chat book, Real Girls Have Real Problems come in? into this story? So real girls have real problems. Oh my goodness. Um, so poet, she, so when I, um, started poet, she, we all were in the midst of like writing, um, something that could turn into a book and really being with them inspired that. So they were like, girl, if you don't take all the poems that you've written and turn that into a book. And, um, we had, you know how like poetry groups have like a venue you know, thank goodness for that venue because that's how Real Girls uh, Have Real Problems got published. There was a woman that would come see me perform at our venue in Greensboro. And she was like, uh, do you have a book? And I was like, no, I'm writing one. And she was like, okay, well, I work for J. Carr Press and Sable Books. We would love, like, send me your book. We would love to publish that. And the rest is history. That was in 2011, like, uh, you know, a year or so after college. And she was like, give us a year. We can publish that by 2012. And I was like, uh, okay. So 2012, Real Girls Have Real Problems came out. And yeah, the rest is the rest is history. So you were approached by the publisher for the chat book. Yeah, she saw me performing at our like regular venue. Yeah. And, and so, so what's the story behind the new collection that's coming out? It's the full length collection for um, yes. Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. Yeah. Do you know it's something very similar? So <laughs> I went to, it's just like weird how things like don't happen the way you think they are and people like just show up. Um, because I was at AWP. So uh, AWP, as you know, is like one of the largest writing and publishing um, conferences in the U.S. And I was just there um, with a friend. And it's so funny because my friend was like, I'll be right back. I'm going to go like look around like you do your thing. And had she not said that, I turned around. I was like, oh, man, this girl done left me at this big conference, like in this this big like there's a huge room full of tables of publishers and presses. And my friend just like kind of went off and I looked around and I was like, okay, what do I do now? So I turned around and there's a table of a press that I had never heard before. It's called Red Hen Press. And I was like, and you know, me just like trying to look like I knew what I was doing. I just walk up to the table and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And there was a guy up there who said like, he wasn't even really, he wasn't with them. He was just like a volunteer. And he starts asking me randomly who I am and what I do. And I was like, why is this random dude? Like he don't even work for the press. Why is he asking me who I am? <laughs> and so he was like, what are you working on? And I was like, okay. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to shop my book that I, I did in my master's program. I just graduated from my MFA program at Queens university. And I was like, and I had two like award-winning teachers and I was like, I'm really trying to sell this book. I'm going to be honest with you. And he was like, wait a minute, who were your teachers? And I was like, Claudia Rankin and Ada Limon. And he was like, are you serious? Or are you joking? I was like, no, no, no. Like look it up on the website. Those were my teachers. I was like, but not only were they my teachers, they helped craft my book. Uh, they were my thesis advisors. And so he was like, you're joking. And I was like, no, he was like, okay, so what I need you to do is I'm gonna give you my card. You're going to send me that book. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, wait, excuse me. <laughs> and he was like, I was like, who are you? And he was like, so I said, I was a volunteer, but actually I'm an acquisitioner that acquisitions collections and books. And I was like, wait, who? <laughs> I was like, okay, God, you, you showing out today. <laughs> so he told me, he gave me his car and I thought he, I, I still thought he was joking or it was like, it was a scam. And I literally sat on his card for six months. I could lie to you not. Me and my husband would be like, is this a joke? Or is like, is he being funny? And I, and there was one day when my husband was like, have you messaged that guy yet? And I was like, you know what? I should message him today. I should send him my book today. I sat on that thing for six months and uh, <laughs> I messaged him and it was like getting closer to the end of the year. And I was like, if I don't message him now and send him this book, I'm going to lose this opportunity. And I did. And the rest is uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Well, damn. 
<laughs> you are you are the second person I've talked to that just had publishers approach them, and the other person was also a poet. That that <laughs> that's dope. So when you were putting this collection together, because you said it was part of your your MFA and your thesis, mm-hmm. were were you intentional about making it about you know ancestral call and response and spiritual healing? You know what? At the time. No, I didn't know that that's what the book's um, like primary theme was going to be. I knew that I wanted to write about my experience in Wilmington. And I knew that I wanted to really call back to like the, the sad irony of the fact that I am a survivor of trauma and um, like child sexual trauma and abuse and how I really feel like at at every major point in my life, there's been a remembrance of the trauma. Um, So when I met my husband, ironically, I talk in the book about how I had trauma remembrances. It just came out of nowhere. Like I just was like, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Same thing happened in Wilmington. I thought that growing up in like the Gary Chicago area, I had this like, I know nothing about Southern racism. And then I was like, whoa, yes, you do. Like I was the only black girl in my private (laughs) whitewashed Christian school. I was like, girl, stop tripping. Like you don't know nothing about racism. Like you went to the South and thought somehow like you, it's almost like I went through these phases of like blocking out memories of things. And so it wasn't until I like put the collection together and gave it to other people where they like, whoa, girl, this is like, this is what this is about. Like, I don't know if you know, but like you got something spooky going on here where there's like a lot of um, like unearthed, hidden trauma and ghosts that you've got that keep, keep, keep drumming up in moments of your life. And I was like, whoa, yeah, you're right. Like, that is what this is about. It took a while. It took me maturing and giving it to older kind of like wiser people to tell me that that was what was going on. But yeah. What role does trauma play in your work outside of just the poems that you had, that you wrote for this collection? Like, does it inform it every day? Like, are you always dealing with it? Is it always there? Um, I would say 85% of the time it's always there. Um, It's interesting because this book and, and even the new work that I'm writing now it's much about the body and desire and like sexual freedom because that's a, a, a moment of trauma in my life. Um, one of the many traumas that I've had. And so I think that trauma is always informing my work, but in an interesting way, it's also freeing me up to say F that I'm going to do the opposite of, you know? So I think at all times I am responding to the trauma that has like for so long buried me down even if it, even if it's me writing pieces to say, nope, I'm not going to let that burden me. I'm going to negate that and do this in spite of. Um, so yeah, I think a, a big majority of my work, because I'm still in the midst of it. Like I'm still very much so in the midst of, as it says, like in the description for the book, like I am still learning to speak to the ghost and, and grapple with them. And learn to put them to rest. I'm not done with that yet. Um, literally and metaphorically, I'm still in like intense healing and therapy around that. So, yeah. What have you learned in excising some of this trauma from your body? I have learned that you're a couple things. As as an artist and not as a writer, your your work turns into something completely when you start to, to exercise these demons and these ghosts, it is something new happens um, that ironically happened as soon as this book writing was over. Um, I don't know, maybe like I needed to get this out and this was like the like first demon I needed to like exercise. And then like, there was a new phase that was going to come out after getting this book out because there's something new that's happening with my writing now. And I'm learning that that's what happens. The more you do the work um, to heal through that, you will see, um, a new language and a new voice start to come up that you that you don't recognize. As a person, I am also learning that you start to put yourself first, which is like much of what I've been kind of like telling you in my journey. I think at all times I've been grappling with like 
the trauma response, which is like people pleasing and like living for other people and working for other people and like being a yes man and doing what I really want to do and seeing the direct correlation between like how I am miserable and sad and depressed when I am not like living for like what holds true to me, um, which is like being free to create full time. Like that's what makes me my happiest. And so like, I think that's what happens when you you start to exercise the demons is you learn like a lot of the stuff you were doing before and like the people you were rocking with and the people you were pleasing, it that's like, you have no space or room for that anymore. Once you start like exercising those, those demons of trauma. So with the title Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat, did you ever, like, I, it, it evokes the image to me of, like, choking or suffocating. Is mm-hmm. that how you felt when you were writing? Or is that just um, the, the image you wanted to evoke? No, it was, I mean, and I don't need to be, like, fluffy and, like, uh, spooky, wookie, but no, literally, like, something happened to me. So um, I found out, it's like so crazy how life works. I found out that I have an autoimmune disease. And so um, that's still undiagnosed and I um, am still like going through how to like uh, process that. And you know what they told me? They told me that much of that is a result of trauma. And so I went through this thing where when, while I was working for the YW, which is why I left, um, I, would, I would go into work and my throat would feel like it was closing. Mm. And I started having constant panic attacks. Like I couldn't function. It was really, really bad. So my husband would have to like sit there with me at work. It was sad. And then he would have to have to like take me home because I couldn't work. Like I couldn't function. So eventually they were like, well, we don't know what to do. Like, are you going to figure out what's going on with your throat? Because we can't have you like not being able to function. And I was like, well, they, the doctors won't tell me what is it. And I went to one of my friends. She's a black uh, yoga instructor and she's a healer. She said, Kalisa, I don't mean to scare you, but yeah, you got like autoimmune and like gastrointestinal, like things going on. But also she was like, some of this is like on a spiritual level. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you have something going on with your throat chakra that you've been silencing yourself and you've been holding a lot of trauma. And she was like, and it's you, she was like, is it tense here? And I was like, yeah, like I can't move my neck. Like I wasn't sleeping. I got really sick because I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping because my neck and my throat was so tight from tension and trauma. Just like, and like, I'm not even exaggerating. It was a, one of the most excruciating periods I've ever been through in my life. And she was like, so you need to start voicing whatever is going on with you, whatever you're holding in, because until you do, she was like, you're not going to be able to use your throat. Mm. And then when I started and like, it's making me emotional thinking about it now, but when I started writing the book, I was like, uh, yeah. So I, I got, uh, awarded the opportunity to go to the poet's house in New York. And that's where this, um, book title came from in the title poem and a lot of the pieces in it. And, um, I, the, my teacher, Safia, who's my like co-editor on this was like, I want you to go to the library and I want you to take six random objects that are like things that you like see in the library or like words you see. And I want you to craft a poem. And I had already like worked on the collection, but it was missing, of course, hella pieces and it was missing a title. And I started writing, like I broke down crying in the library because mm-hmm. I thought about like what the, my friend had said, my, yo- the yoga instructor had said about my throat. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> like that needs to be, that's the poem that needs to be the title. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about it. I want to get you into reading from it and I, sure. I do want to hear the title piece. So I'm going to tee you up. I'm going to read the description and okay. then I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. So both in a black girl's throat is a heart wrenching reconciliation and confrontation of the living, breathing ghosts that's awakened black women each day. This debut poetry collection summons multiple hauntings, ghosts of matriarchs that came before, those that were slain, and those that continue to speak to us, but also those horrors women of color strive to put to rest. Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat examines the haunting feeling of facing past demons while grappling with sexism, racism, and bigotry. They are all present, ancestral ghosts, societal ghosts, and spiritual internal hauntings. This book calls out for women to speak their truth 
in hopes of settling the ghosts or at least being at peace with them. Lisa, go ahead. The South will birth a new kind of haunting in your black girlness, your black womanness. You will become a poached confection, honeyed enigma pledging to be allegiant. The muddied silk robe waving in their amber grades of bigotry, your skin a rhetorical question, blood-stained equation no one wants to answer. You will be the umber, tawny, terracotta, tongue splattered on their American flag, beautiful brown spangled anthem that you are. You will be the bended knee and the boot of their American dream and they will stitch your mouth the color of patriarchy. Call it black girl magic when they rip the seams. Southern Belle is just another way to say stayed in the right plight place on the pedestal and your sun-kissed skin will get caught in a crosshair of questions like where are you from no where are you really from and you are you will get asked where are you from more than you are asked how are you doing like this name this tongue this hair ain't a tapestry of things they made you forget the continent they forced to the back of your throat and that's what they, what they will come for first the throat they know that be your superpower, your furnace of rebellion. So they silence you before the coal burn, burns, resurrect, resurrect monuments of ghosts on your street to keep you from ever looking up, build a liquor store on every corner so you don't notice the curated segregation, call it redistricting. Our cities muzzle the men with gallows for tongues, call it obedient school. Synthesize ghettos, graffiti them in gold and call it urban redevelopment. The South will make bitch a sweet exaggeration of your name, sit, speak, come when spoken to, and the leash will always be taught. Always gripping around a word you never said, your body an apparition, hologram of its former self, too much magic in one room turns sorcery, witchcraft, and we be witches, don't we? Reassembling the chandeliers of our reflections, we spin a web of shade and make it a place to rest under broad oak that it is. And they will suck the jubilation from our gatherings that are now a cancer. We will clap back with shaking hands because that's all we got. These voices, these throats, this righteous indignation, they will start with the muzzle. Always taught to melt the metallic of our wills. They will always be a rusted bit in the mouth of this hork, horse that was too stubborn to ever be spooked by their ghosts. Do mm. you have another you'd like to share? Of course. Um, I think I'm going to read uh, Southern Foreclosures. It used to be called guide, Guidebook for Those Considering the South Home. Um, and I think it the title says it all. One, long back roads still rattle me, make me fear being asked to step out, the nightstick, the gun, being turned to roadkill, left on the curb, forgotten. Two, pitch black nights remind me of the torch, deep fried flesh tarred and feathered, watching bodies swing like gruesome drive-in films. Three. Open fields remind me of leather whips, raking fingers through grass, blood, sweat, lathered cotton, body parts left out for fertilizer. Four, farm animals grazing remind me of buying and selling of meat, ripping baby from mother for consumption, burning and branding the slaughter, hanging out to dry like jerky. Five, big plantation houses, the house slave and the field nigga, maid and mistress, Dinner service, bronze bodies, expensive ornaments fresh off the auction block. Six, reminds me of state fairs and come see the hanging Negro. Where can I place my bid? This one has a strong back, good teeth and broad shoulders, not the whole family. How much for the little boy and girl? Seven, hunting season and the wild woods remind me of forest bullets blazing, black skulls, branches cutting ankles, underground railroads hiding the creek from the coon dogs, sniffing out the smell of a runaway. Eight, the, the Cape Fear River reminds me of the drowning, the throwing bodies over the bridge to hide the evidence, the vanishing of whole families, how they threw us over ships like rotten catfish. Nine, boxing matches reminds me of strapping black brutes fighting for bets, bare knuckle knocking out until unconscious for entertainment. 
toasting to the tearing of flesh and smoking a cigar in celebration when one was dead. Ten, Southern bell and sweet tea smells like centuries of injustice. Eleven, Southern comfort tastes like privilege. Twelve, Southern hospitality sounds too unsettling to ever be called home. Hmm. It seems like, well, both of your collections came out of a time where you were living in the South. So what is your relationship with the South and what role does it play in informing your work? <laughs> um, I have a <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with the South. It's funny that um as I grow here more and I start to f- form a family, you know, I got married here in the South. I just bought a home here. I um have my new little fur baby, my little animal. We're thinking about having kids soon. I think that as I start to plant roots and build a home, um, and I'm also partnered with somebody who has lived here the whole life. And so when you see the South through their eyes, you start to see um, that there can be a healing that happens here. And there can be um, a home built from the trauma and from the rubble before (laughs) uh, starting to get serious about here, I think that the South was very much so this this cousin or this family member I hated to admit was a part of my family. Mm -hmm. And now I am embracing, you know, uh, this cousin or this this step family member that I've never wanted to embrace as a Midwesterner or a Northern girl. Uh, yeah, I'm very much so embracing it and I'm letting it uh, provide beauty to my work because the South is so beautiful. Um, it's scenically and aesthetically so gorgeous that I'm I'm now letting beauty spring from um, some of the, the weeds and the muck and the mire um, that I originally saw it as. What has been the journey of your healing process to get to this point where you can, can see the beauty and the trauma? I'm going to be honest with you, uh, intense therapy. Um, I encourage any, any writer, uh, any artist that has been a survivor of trauma to really, um, lean on the professionals that were, uh, designed to do that and, and not, uh, try other, uh, sources, use the people that were licensed to do so. Um, but seriously, I, uh, you know, all those memes that are going out now that are like <laughs> black people would do everything, but go to therapy. And it's like, I'm so blessed to have a, a partner that, um, encourages me to go. He goes, and that's like a requirement. So like us as two like sensitive ass artists and writers, you can't be in a house with somebody else who's another writer without saying like, nope, we both, we both got to go to therapy. Um, both like couples and individual. And so like that has really started to create that healing process because as I talk about in the book, I have trauma that is like void of just being a black woman in the South. I have trauma that's deeply connected to relationships, desire, sex, and romance. And it's hard. It's very difficult to like build a life here with somebody else when all of your trauma, like a lot of your trauma is connected to relationships and love and sex and desire. And so I found that that has been transformative, transformative to be in, in, in therapy. But also I've, um, since I learned about like all of my body stuff and my throat stuff, that moment that I had with that, um, yoga instructor and that healer telling me about my throat, that encouraged me to go see a naturopath. And so that has really like started to literally, um, allow me to heal, like starting a self-care routine. It's like, writing for things that are not business, like journaling, just writing for the fun of it is healing, you know, essential oils and sitting and meditating and be out at being out in nature, um, has started to like make me have this new version of like, what does healing mean? Um, and really like taking care, like care of myself. That's still a journey. Um, but that's a decision that I made when I learned how much like trauma, um, was like breaking me physically down and mentally and spiritually down. I was like, nah, I have to build up this like self-care routine. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to create anymore. Like I won't be here. I'll just be a shell of a person. So that's been my commitment to both, you know, my, myself, my partner, uh, to just really like be intentional, intentional about healing. Yeah. How do you actively refill your creativity cup? I mean, you know, what's funny is like some of the stuff that I just named does it for me. Like 
doing activities that have nothing to do with work and the creation for a coin. Like I always say that to myself. What me and my therapist say, every day you have to do five things that have nothing to do with creation for a coin. So don't do something that's connected to somebody giving you a check, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Find five things that you can do that spark your creativity. So whether it's, you know, like I just watched uh, Issa Rae's masterclass and that like broke something new open for me because I'm in the midst of writing a novel and looking for an agent. And like, I gave myself permission to do that because there was no money involved, but her talking about like story building and, and movie and TV writing just like sparked a new, a new section of my brain that has nothing to do with poetry, but it did spark um, a new love for storytelling that I haven't done in a long time. Um, so I think like watching creators um, on television, um, watching comedy specials sparks like creativity in me. Um, some of the things that I was harkening back to before about just like getting out <laughs> into the world and people watching. So like, I really love watching other people interact and listening to conversations and and uh, and even watching people argue, like it's fun, but it also like sparks up um ideas for stories and ideas for new new poems and and um different like creative endeavors that I want to uh explore and then I would say finally like meeting people that are out of my like current bubble has really sparked a lot of creativity because I have learned and this is like you know a conversation girl tea for another day but I have learned that a part of trauma is like putting a lot of people around you that are toxic for you too And so I have learned that I've had to do a lot of weeding and pruning of like things that were sucking my creativity. But I've been noticing that the more I like meet new people and have have conversations with just like random people, um, artists or otherwise, they have been sparking a lot of ideas and creativity lately about like topics to write about and new creative ventures that I want to do. So, yeah. Yeah. That's dope. So I want to transition to the speed round before we get to the last question for the interview. So what is your favorite book? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Ooh, okay. So right now I am really, so I have like, I'm going to tell you what two of my favorite books are right now. Um, My homegirl, Mahogany Brown wrote a new book and it's called Chlorine Sky. And I think that might be one of my new favorite books. The, the shit is dope. It's it's really dope. Um, so that's like a must read. But then like at all times, I, ha- I always have two because my brain is like, oh, I like this for the technical, but also like I like reading like messy or just like raunchy stuff. So my <laughs> friend, so I put out a call for like messy books or like just like, just like romance, whatever. My friend, uh, actually Sarah Smith, it's funny to say one of my favorite books is one of my friend's books. But my friend, um, Sarah Smith wrote this book called uh, Faker. And I have literally gone back and read this book like 15 different times. And maybe it's because I'm currently writing a Black rom-com, a Black rom-com novel. Um, And of course, this is not to negate like all of like my classic favorites, like Raising the Sun and all that. But just like recently... These are two of my favorites that like, I can't stop reading them over and over again. And I think that that says something. Um, yeah, I like seeing like women of color books about that, like fall in love um, in a like interesting way. And so, yeah, those are, those are two of my, my must reads favorites right now. Who is your favorite author? So, yeah, like I said, like, you know, can't forget about, about the classics. Um, I would definitely say, my favorite author, that's hard because I used to say um, that it was Toni Morrison um, just because her work speaks a lot um, to the themes that we've been talking about today. And and she speaks a lot to like healing and trauma, like naming trauma, especially in the Black community and like the healing from that as a Black woman. Um, so I would definitely probably say a tie between either Toni Morrison um, or ironically, my, my professor Claudia, I'm obsessed with her work too. Um, and she has one of my favorite books too, Citizen. Um, so maybe a toss up between Claudia Rankin and Toni Morrison. What is your favorite song? 
<laughs> um, <laughs> that's funny. I laugh because I have such an eclectic like uh, taste. Um, I would say my favorite song. I don't know if I have just one favorite. Um, is this is it weird that like one of the songs that I love to sing is um is uh sex on fire by kings of leon <laughs> no that's what you like to sing that's what you like to sing i uh i can rip that joint in karaoke like not to brag but <laughs> like <laughs> i'm gonna have to go find that and listen to it to, he- to, to see what it's all about um name a poet you don't you think doesn't get enough shine Ooh, i like this one um a poet that doesn't get enough shine um, so I would definitely say, um, I am in a workshop with one of like the best unknown poets that I know. Um, her name is Belinda and she's a member of, um, and I can't, it's Belinda M and I can't remember um, how to pronounce her last name, but she is, uh, such a hidden gem and a talent that's like immeasurable. And I'm in a, like the luminaries workshop with her ran by my friend, Sophia Faye. Um, and Belinda just like, nobody knows. We always say like, nobody knows who you are, but like, you're one of the best poets we know. (laughs) Belinda's young. She was like in her twenties. She's like an African poet and just like stellar, like outstanding, never seen or heard anybody as good as her. So yeah. What role does spirituality play in your life? Ooh, a huge part. Um, I think that spirituality helps keeping me, helps keep me grounded kind of like in the midst of all of the trauma and the sadness that we've talked about and the oppression of like living here in the South and and what that comes with. Um, it always provides, it provides a lightness too, to my life and to my work. Um, And then lastly, I would just say it's been an anchor for me because of, you know, we've talked about my journey. It's truly like my faith and my spirituality has definitely been an anchor when things have gotten um, out of control and rocky. I can always return back to that and know that that's a true constant in my life. What's the connection between motherhood, ancestral memory and ghosts? Mm. That's a good question. I think that... um, (laughs) I, you know, when I was a a kid, my mom used to put the oil on the door to cast the ghost out. And so I think that for me, um, and with me not, you know, not being a mother, but wanting to be, I think that motherhood and the, the role mothers play for me personally is almost like, um, she is the, um, the like being or the entity that has the power to cast the ghost out. And I think that, you know, this is sad, but also a lot of my um, like ancestral ghosts are also tied to my mother too. And so, um, but I, I feel like motherhood teaches you that there is an immeasurable power that you have to be the voice to cast out ghosts. But at the same time, um, it also is like the window to seeing um, the like truths about past ancestral ghosts. And so I think it's like all interwoven, interconnected, just for me personally. Um, I found that that relationship is like symbiotic it's like this uh trifecta that's happening if you will are you at peace with your ghosts <laughs> i know no i am trying to be actively working actively working uh to be at peace with them what has been your biggest mistake mm. i don't know if there's just one um i i'm gonna say I, i'm not gonna point out a uh one moment what i will say uh because i am back here dealing with this now what i will say is one of my biggest mistakes just as a whole has been what i was telling you before that i've had a hard time dealing with as a result of trauma which is 
letting things go and people go that are not for me. Like a biggest mistake that I've made repeatedly. And that has like led to a lot of um, turmoil and unhappiness. So I would say that not letting go. And I have a poem about that in my book, but yeah. How do you you actively put yourself first? Um, (laughs) I mean, doing that. So like saying no to people and things that aren't for me pruning out things that are toxic. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying about like being intentional about healing and self-care. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And asking myself every day, what makes me happy? What brings you joy? Um, it's funny, like these questions are like on top of like the last thing I just said, um, (laughs) what brings me joy is, um, time with, um, the ones I love and being in the present moment with them. And um, the thought that one day I will be able to very soon be able to fully create every day, all day for a living. Um, yeah. And uh, last question for the speed round. What sound soothes you? Mm. The sound that soothes me is the sound. Ooh, this is like so ironic. The sound of the ocean. Um, the sound of the ocean, um, and like the, the sound of like my husband's singing voice, um, probably those two soothe me the most. So you're on this journey to fully embrace this literary artist lifestyle. You've got (laughs) a chat book, a poetry collection, you're working on a novel. When you are no longer here and you are now a ghost, what would you <laughs> like someone to write about your legacy? Mm. Mm. That's a ooh, that's a good question. That hit me. You know, I think about this a lot. Um, you know, the only thing that I really want to be remembered for or someone to write about me is that like I came to like help someone. I just want my writing to help somebody find a way out in a way that like, I didn't have that. Um, yeah. I don't think that I it, like growing up in the eighties and like um, not really having a lot of representation for black women. I didn't have anybody to tell me that it's okay to talk about like sexual trauma and like healing and abuse and like uh, queer identity and things like that. And that's okay to like speak that and speak your truth. Um, so I hope that what they write is that I was focused at all times on like being um, a voice for those who um, didn't feel like they had a platform to speak, but also that I came to just like help someone uh, find a way out of things that seem like they are, um, they are so heavy um, that there is no light Um, and then like, finally, I would just say that I hope that they also write that, um, I was always like driven to like uplift my people and, um, really like give them resources and tools or whatever was needed that was like gate kept from them, like that people like to hide from us. Um, my goal was always to like, on on all of that on like being a publisher and you know being an artist and all the tools and the resources that it takes to do that um that was like that is my life's goal and I hope like that's what um someone writes about me one day that I wanted to just like help my people uplift people and yeah Yeah. thank you Kalisa thank you so much this was a joy you're very very welcome Big thank you to Kalisa Ray for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Kalisa's latest debut poetry collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat, out now from Red Hen Press. And if you're not following Kalisa on the socials, please follow her. She's at Kalisa Ray on Twitter. That's K underscore L-I-S-A-R-A-E. K Lisa Ray on Twitter and Liberated KW on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, 
which by now you should, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you want to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published, B-L-K and Published on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com, N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.